0: This podcast is brought to you by the NATO Association of Canada and the University of Toronto's NATO Research Group. Ce balado vous est présenté par l'Association canadienne pour l'OTAN et le Centre de recherche sur l'OTAN de l'Université de Toronto.
1: Conflict, insecurity, weak institutions and limited access to justice remain a great threat to sustainable development. We are a more secure society when democratic principles are promoted. Today, we explore the importance of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 16, Peace, Justice and Strong Institutions. Joining me is Kristen Sample, the Director of the National Democratic Institute Democratic Governance Team. She has more than 20 years of experience in democratic governance programming and has published extensively on issues related to anti-corruption, citizen security, political representation and gender. My name is Eric Jackson. I am a program editor at the NATO Association of Canada. Each episode, we will explore how the Sustainable Development Goals relate and address global security topics. The goal of this podcast is to highlight the need to incorporate sustainability in all our solutions. The world is changing, so too should our approach to emerging threats. Welcome to Sustainable Security. <music> Well, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have this conversation about the Sustainable Development Goals, particularly SDG number 16, Peace, Justice and Strong Institutions. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: No, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Eric.
1: So the National Democratic Institute works around the world to strengthen and safeguard democratic institutions and has been doing so for the last 35 years. In your experience, does the achievement of SDG 16 peace, justice, and strong institutions directly relate to global security?
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Eric, for that question. I mean, I think that what we've seen over the last decades is certainly that the countries that are experiencing fragility and conflict um, are making the least progress toward development and towards sustainable democracy. And I think that there's growing awareness on the need to focus on kind of core governance functions as a a prerequisite to a a sustainable piece. And um, I think you see that reflected. I think that a lot of the the type, the let's say sort of the qualifiers in terms of governance that you see uh, reflected in SDG 16, like on 1610, which is responsive, inclusive, participatory, representative decision-making at all levels gets at sort of the core elements of democratic governance that have been shown over and over again to be really the only uh, pathway to a sustainable peace and i think also i would just give some you know kudos to the u.n because on the ground of course that's the normative framework and then the u.n actions on the ground i think also reflect that whether it's uh, peace building efforts you know, which try to make political settlements and inclusive politics as sustainable as possible and offer actors an opportunity to participate in a democratic process through sort of a mutual security pact, I think is, is one reflection of that. I think we've also seen, uh, you know, for instance, here in the US and North America, I think the situation in Central America is quite a bit in the news where we see that there's been really this very deep and longstanding challenges when it comes to rule of law, for instance, and responsive institutions. And I think we're seeing more and more that those are actually drivers of insecurity, of violence, of of trafficking issues, and even of displacement and migration. So there's certainly a lot of different connections that we can point to. But I do wanna highlight that all of this is, we have to keep in mind that it's just such a long-term proposition. These aren't changes that can take place in a matter of, you know, a project horizon of three to five years. They're really long-term challenges, and they require long-term, sustained, concerted effort. In fact, the World Bank talks about, you know, developing effective, sustainable institutions can take a generation or or even more.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And one thing I've found really with SDGs in particular is that having a strong democratic institution at the foundation of everything really sets up for success for everything else and particularly every other goal in it to be achieved. So I've always had an admiration for SGG 16. I'm always excited to talk about it and exclusion is a cause and consequence of violent conflict and the sustainable development goals include a cross-cutting commitment to leave no one behind. In what ways should democracy assistance support the inclusion of marginalized groups?
0: That's a really important issue as well. I, you know, in NDI, we say that democracy and inclusion are really indivisible, and the democracy it will flourish when traditionally disenfranchised people, including women, persons with disabilities, young people, LGBTQI plus individuals, indigenous peoples, refugees really across the spectrum, are able to meaningfully participate in electoral and political processes. I think that's very much, as you were saying, grounded in that kind of UN foundational principle of uh, leave no one behind, which is an explicit pledge of the 2030 agenda. Um, What I think is really interesting, too, of the SDGs in comparison with the the MDGs, the the predecessor, is that I think this concept of left behind um, also makes us kind of conscious of not just poverty levels, but also inequality levels, that um, a lot of the the strife and the conflict and the kind of lack of, or the rule of law challenges are really at their core also um, a manifestation of inequalities, unfair, unjust distributions that underpin that sort of marginalization. I think, you know, you've probably seen the statistics we all have. It's just really mind-boggling the level of concentration of global wealth and just the uber-rich, and that seems to, unfortunately, with the pandemic, only have been more exacerbated than uh, what we had pre-pandemic. So, um, again, I think that to make that meaningful progress on the leave-no-one-behind front, Uh, means that we have to go beyond just kind of reducing poverty and really working through democratic processes to address these uh, unequal distributions um, to address the disparities um, by income um, but also disparities between different types of social groups and the discrimination that that kind of holds back full and meaningful engagement of all and that is always um, also I think a real threat to to peace of course and uh, a spark uh, that we've seen in so many places to, to violent conflict.
1: And having an inclusive society that allows everyone to participate is such a vital aspect of a strong democracy. And and that alone is a threat to democracy and not having an inclusive society, but another constant threat is authoritarianism and it seems like the world feels like it's at an inflection point right now with authoritarianism on the rise like for example in the past year or so we've seen we saw the belarusian uh, government uh divert ryanair flight 4978 down to the ground just because they're opposition to a to an opposition figure and that's an example of authoritarianism on the rise so what are some of the principal challenges facing democracy around the world at this time
0: yeah, I mean, you bring up a great example, a very you know, just such a compelling example. but it's an example I think that um, is uh, indicative of a larger trend, as you're saying. And you know, according to, and it's borne out by the research as well. There's a group called Varieties of Democracy that has just you know hundreds of thousands of data points that they track over the years. and that you know, according to their most recent most recent uh, research, more than two-thirds of the world is now living under autocratic rule. I think that, for many years, citizens, folks in North America, we may have taken democracy for granted. I don't think that we should. I think that um, the state of the world today points out to us that you know there's no democracy by default. It's it's not the default category. It's really, uh, and it's not uh, irreversible as well. I think we have to recognize that most of the world isn't living in full democracies, and even those of us that are lucky enough to live in democratic countries have to recognize that the real f- fragility of our democratic rights and privileges and that it has to be something that is uh, maintained and sustained and defended um, really every every day because what we see so often it's, it's just so insidious the the authoritarianism trend it, it's not necessarily just a coup d'etat um, in the middle of the night you know by the military it's it's more and more commonly this kind of pattern of a chipping away and erosion of democratic institutions often through what some people call executive aggrandizement so it's the the executive branch the the national government that expands its power at the expense of the checks and balances and accountability structures that we need to see and they do that through all sorts of again incremental kind of ad hoc strategies that you have to pay close attention to you may not notice until it's too late because once that erosion has set in that it can it can occur rather quickly but to reverse the erosion to um, rebuild or restore uh, institutions is a lot more difficult than (laughs) um, than the erosion itself so i think that's a really important thing to keep in mind i think that you know something else that's really interesting especially in the u.n context i was looking back at the um, secretary general's 2009 guidance note on democracy And it's really striking. That's just 12 years old now. And there's only one reference in it to information communication technologies. You know, technology, which is such a central part of our life today and having such an impact on democratic processes and institutions was barely mentioned. Um, It was really only mentioned in terms of e-governance in that UN guidance note on democracy. So I think that that's something else that, you know, it's happening in parallel with this trend towards authoritarianism. And it's certainly in some ways empowering autocrats through opportunities for surveillance, through disinformation that uh, undermines public trust, through increasing social division and scapegoating. There's all sorts of ways, nefarious ways, I think, that autocrats are taking advantage of uh, technology. And it's also, of course, putting our our democracies at, at greater risk.
1: Uh, the rise of digital technologies and the spread of misinformation and disinformation is really a product of recent times in terms of this digital expansion and digital explosion. So it's it's interesting to see how sort of recent examples of 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 changes to the world allow authoritarianism to rise and allow these threats to democracy to persist. And another sort of recent example of some that sort of has put democracy under particular stress is COVID-19. It seems like it's had a drastic impact on democracy around the world. So what types of strain has the pandemic put on democracies and what can be done about it? And by extension, what are the connections between peace and security and COVID-19?
0: Yeah, I mean, COVID-19, it's still playing out, right? We're 18 months into this, and um, it's still playing out. I I think that, you know, the major takeaway is it's not just a public health and an economic development emergency, but it's really a democratic governance crisis that has contributed toward that trend that you mentioned, uh, towards authoritarianism, and also, in many cases, shrunk the political space um, and the civic space, which you know, is this vicious circle, because the more that you're shrinking the public space and that you're moving towards authoritarianism, that's just going to in turn lead to diminished health and livelihood outcomes over time. So we get into this, this kind of very vicious circle. I think that also, again, it's, it's um, there are a lot of folks doing monitoring this. It does seem that COVID-19 has increased instability and tensions political violence um, since COVID increased in, I think I saw a statistic about half of all the countries around the world. Um, I've also seen statistics that show that it's usually after sort of a a shock or a pandemic like this, not immediate that that the social unrest uh, explodes, but 18 uh, months after because you know people are first in trying to deal with their health crisis but then the economic impacts and the budget cuts that have to come because governments have overspent or spent more than expected on health and they're trying to meet other needs and you know unemployment uh, is still a problem that's when you really see the um the effects and the problems related to uh, social conflict and social unrest so i wouldn't be surprised unfortunately if in the coming months we see quite a lot more of, um, and I'm not just talking about democratic protests, which um, is, is often a very a positive thing. Uh, I'm talking about you know the type of violent conflict that we're, we're hoping um, we're trying to move away from. I think that, you know, in a lot of time, the other connection that I alluded to before is that sometimes these heightened tensions are the result of populist leaders who try to distract people from their own governance failings by stoking division. Um, in ways that, again, erode the democratic norms and also um, scapegoat um, the other, some sort of marginalized groups that gets back to that leave no one behind agenda. And in many countries, we've seen that autocrats have taken advantage of COVID to um, attack women's movements or other rights groups, to attack uh, migrants, other ethnic groups, to blame others. And of course, that's another way that Um, that COVID is going to present challenges or presents challenges when it comes to a peace and security perspective. You know, in NDI, we put out a white paper a couple of months ago called Building Back Democratically because um, our perspective is that the only path to a sustainable COVID recovery is if we build back democratically through democratic engagement. And just briefly, it has five core components. What does that mean? How do we build back democratically from COVID? One is to make sure that our actions and our responses are shoring up democratic institutions. Another one is engaging the furthest behind through participatory decision-making. So making sure again, that no one is left behind in the COVID recovery. A third is strengthening information integrity. Again, addressing um, disinformation, misinformation, and making sure that and governments are communicating in inclusive and and comprehensive ways. Uh, The fourth is combating COVID corruption, which again, we've seen in quite a few Cases so to make sure that the response mechanisms, stimulus packages and such have integrity measures incorporated. And then the last is you know preventing violence by renewing the social contract having a peace building lens, of course, as well when we're. um, Developing any sort of measure is a COVID response, making sure that the support that's given the stimulus that's provided the health services aren't exacerbating or, or further generating conflict between between groups.
1: I love that you mentioned the idea of the social contract right there, because to me, that's such an important aspect of our society in the sense that democracy is is at the heart of this social contract that supports the ability to fight off any sort of threat such as COVID-19 or economic challenge or social inequality to society. It's all interconnected through this social contract and democracy is at the heart of that social contract, in, in my opinion, at least. And I've really enjoyed this conversation so far, and, and just moving on to our final question, and, and you mentioned corruption as one of those key pillars of building back democratically. And the Biden White House has identified corruption as a core US national security interest, and if, if you ask me, I think it should be a core national security interest for any country um, in fighting corruption, as it's such an important thing to stamp out of our democracy what is the connection between corruption and national security and what can be done to reduce corruption through through the lens of SDG 16?
0: Yeah, I mean, in, in NDI, we, we, we do a lot of work around the world to support integrity and to help our partners to combat corruption. I mean, there are so many negative impacts of, of corruption on uh, democratic systems, on development contexts, and on, of course, the peace and security context. Uh, corruption diverts and wastes resources, most obviously, but it also weakens institutions to the extent that, for instance, there might be corruptions in a customs office, then you're perverting or subverting the, the institutionality of the, of the customs agency it tilts the electoral playing field. And that gets into that authoritarianism aspect that you were looking at. Because when uh, autocrats are able to use corruption to garner more resources for their campaigns to crowd out, intimidate, push out honest uh, politicians, then clearly it tilts the electoral playing field, gives the incumbent an advantage and uh, deepens, again, that trend towards uh, authoritarianism. And just overall, I mean, it undermines public trust in governance and democracy, because when citizens see, and often it's just so evident, um, the corruption in many countries, it makes them think that, you know, the government's not in it for them, that, you know, if it is a democratic country, that the democracy is um, subjected or subordinated to the interests of a powerful few and why should they go to vote? Why should they participate? Why should they believe in democracy? So there's just a lot of different insidious uh, impacts. And on that national security question, I mean, in particular, it's, you know, I mean, I think we're all just watching um, what's happening in Afghanistan with just deep dismay and distress. And I think the events that really put in sharp relief, the fact that many like Sarah Chase and others, have pointed to the connections between corruption and the lack of support for the government, the lack of strength of the government, the hollowing out of the institutions there is a core challenge that really unraveled the system. And she gives a lot of different examples of how there were lots of shakedowns of people at checkpoints, or there was constant requests for bribes in, in ways that just really, again, hollowed out the institutions and hollowed out, um, I guess, public trust or identification with, with the government. And it's really, you know, when you're looking at systems like that, it's not just corruption, but it's really full-scale kleptocracy where corruption is, is part of the operating system. So I guess that in context like that one, we really shouldn't be surprised when uh, local people don't take risks on behalf of the government um, or, um, you know, again, turn out to vote or to participate or to contribute to the democratic system in a, in a positive way. Um, and that's maybe one dramatic example, but I think it plays out in different ways, um, really in countries across the world.
1: I love that you brought the example of Afghanistan because it is so relevant in today's society as it's at the top of our minds right now. And that is an example of where we must support the Afghan people in sort of building up their democracy and building up a society where everyone there can live peacefully and securely and prosperously to have a better life and to be able to live um, the life they want to live and not under any sort of authoritarian rule or, or oppressive rule for that matter. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been wonderful. I have personally learned a lot. I think our audience will have learned a lot from this conversation. And and just before I let you go, I want to give you a quick sort of brief question. Do you think there's there's room for optimism going into the next sort of few years of the world in terms of building up democracy? And it's been a challenging sort of last 18 months, as you mentioned the COVID-19, but is there room for optimism going forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that even with, um, again, that larger trend that we've discussed, that there are lots of cases of resilience and, you know, democracy sort of striking back um, against the the authoritarian trend. I think that there are cases of countries from Moldova to Zambia, for instance, where um, through democratic elections and through um, citizen participation, and through you know an anti-corruption campaign and independent media where uh, stakeholders uh, kind of across the spectrum were able to get together and to push for a return to um, a more solid democratic footing so i certainly think that there are a lot of positive cases around the world i think that um, it really does require though very concerted effort of all across the international community, because so many of the the problems, especially with corruption, I mean, corruption is transnational, right? So there's certainly um, a role for the West to play as well in combating corruption in Equatorial Guinea, or in um, Guatemala, or in uh, Malaysia, you know, the West, and I mean, North America and Europe in particular, were often the place where all the looted resources are invested in um, mansions and yachts and bank accounts and so i'm hoping and it does seem like this year there's more awareness of the role that again uh, the west and north american europe in particular can play in supporting democracy in combating kleptocracy Um, we'll have a democracy what is it summit for democracies um convened by um President Biden, but hopefully really gaining steam and ownership of countries across the world to to come together and take stock of the democratic challenges and hopefully make commitments um, in terms of what they can do domestically and internationally to support a stronger democratic system. So yes, I mean, I think there's certainly, it's a challenging time. I don't want to downplay all of that. But I do think that there's room for optimism and that we have to be supportive and collaborative, and working together to, um, to bolster those uh, democratic systems and their resilience where they exist currently.
1: That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. To learn more about the NATO Association of Canada, look us up online at natoassociation.ca, and follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to stay up to date on all things NATO. Until next time, take care.